Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Matt Brocker. Afternoon, Matt. How are you? Very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, to be honest. Um, me too. But Matt, before we get into the real thick of the conversation, maybe just give a brief insight around who you are, what you do, and kind of spin it off from there. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, like I say, my name is Matt. Um, currently the Director of Football Operations at, uh, at Southampton, um, with, uh, I, I guess, overseeing three key parts. One, um, supporting Ralph and the first team around uh, the infrastructure, the culture, the environment, how the team we want the team to play, uh, etc. Trying to help uh, Ralph and the team win today. Um, big part of the role is also the academy, so almost sort of preparing for the future, whether that's infrastructure, um, players, uh, sort of any area of the academy, which is sort of the area that I've, I've specifically come from. And then the final piece of the jigsaw is uh, the women are expanding women's and girls programs, so supporting Marianne Spacey Kale who's our head of uh, head of women's and, and girls program in, in making sure we're developing our, our women's and girls structure. Awesome. Uh, you know, you talked about being a director of uh, football operations. Now, you don't just fall into that. So where did that where did that journey into, you know, get into this 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 point of your career start? You know, how did you get into football? Where, where, where did that where did that begin? Yeah, so um, th- through, I guess, as, as many uh, as many coaches uh, or people involved in the game previously, I was a failed player. So I, I was at Cardiff City till the age of 18 um, and got released after my two-year scholarship. And uh, at the time, you know, the you always loved your sport, loved my coaching, loved my football. And there was very little avenues at that time to to get full-time into into sport. So the, the general avenue that everyone sort of took around that time was to train up to be a PE teacher. So um, trained to be a PE teacher. And at the year I qualified, there wasn't one PE teaching job in the whole of South Wales. Those guys stay in the job for about 26 years. So um, so I sort of fell into coaching, really, and um, started working uh, part time at Cardiff City. And uh, Gavin Tate, who was then the head of youth at, at Cardiff City, uh, moved to, to Sunderland. And uh, I was asked by uh, the club to take over for six weeks and stayed there for six and a half years. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's my sort of journey into into youth development. Uh, so I ran the academy at Cardiff City for six or seven years um, 
then did the same at Southampton um, for six or seven years. Uh, and then had the fortune of working with Dan Ashworth and being in the infancy of the England DNA at the time of England teams around 2012, 2013, and was at the FA of head of coaching player development for, again, about six or seven years before coming back to Southampton as the director of football. Definitely. And it is, you've, you've done really well to kind of maybe sum up maybe 15, 20 years, maybe in in about 15, 20 seconds. So, you know, yeah. just just a little bit on that then, Matt. Obviously, you know, you talked there about running the academy at Cardiff and then moving over to Southampton. Um, obviously, things have changed dramatically now from where Cardiff maybe were back then and where they are now, um, just because of the way the game's grown and the amount of uh, you know the money that's in the game. Um, what would you say is one of the major differences from back then to maybe now? And then we'll, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, um, Cardiff at the time when I joined uh, when I joined Cardiff, we were a League One club um, with ambitions to to become a, a Premier League uh, future Premier League club. So it was a very small program. So uh, so we at the time I joined, we had we were just in the infancy of Centre of Excellence starting out with the old Charter for Quality, um, and uh, we were a small Centre of Excellence. We didn't have really any nines, tens, and elevens. Our program was twelves upwards, so it was sort of twelves to the under 18s, the youth team. So it was, a, it was quite a small program. But but very quickly, six months into that, um, Sam Haman, who was the the ex Wimbledon chairman from the crazy gang uh, era, took over uh, Cardiff City and was mad passionate on youth development. And really overnight, our ambition went from trying to become a small centre of excellence to producing some players for our first team to, you know, Sam's ambition was we want to be an academy, we want to be an academy yesterday. So um, when I think about the differences then to now, obviously the size of the, the staff pretty much was, we had quite a small staff. So, you know, one youth team coach, um, it was myself and uh, uh, and one of my highly well, highly respected coach in the game in many years, Terry Moore, that, that worked with me for for many years. So really, there was there was a sort of three of us at the beginning at the infancy at, at Cardiff. I'm probably into the um, into the early academy days that were pretty much responsible for the whole of the coaching structure. You know, running the majority of the teams um, throughout the age group. So. It's very different now in terms of the when you think about the large MDT, the multidisciplinary teams that are established now in academies. You know, there's a lot of input, a lot of decision making, a lot of um, a lot of ideas, and and I think things move at a slower pace. Whereas at the time, you know, if we made a decision that we want, we felt our under 16 program, for example, needed to move in a different direction, we could just pretty much get together and do it tomorrow. Um, I think sometimes. That was a, a real positive because you could make changes and be agile to change and implement things really, really quickly. Um, but obviously, the, the downside is maybe you didn't have the expertise in the room from the variety of disciplines to be able to get the right depth of knowledge before you made. So it was trial and error, really. But you know, moving quickly and and being agile within a program, you know, is something that I I'm quite an energetic. I like positivity. I like I like change. I like trying ideas. So you know, it fitted the way that we wanted to move. I think it's it's much more difficult to do that now in the multidisciplinary environment of the academies of today. And I'm I'm so, I'm so glad you mentioned that as well because obviously the MD teams have become a massive part of how academies run, um, just in just how clubs run in general. But do you think um, there's a danger now that maybe there's too many cooks in the kitchen? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So when I think back uh, and I and I think of these conversations uh, that I used to have with with Terry Moore, um, who was I guess my um, my wise old owl when I was a, a young you know, person trying to 
trying to make a, an impact in the game and, and and just at the beginning I learned a lot from Terry and you know the sort of yin and yang and, and he was very much um around sort of you know doing things at a pace for sure but actually um using your experience so you know we would we would pack the kits on a Friday we would drive the minibuses we would have a you know a, a medical bag on the side of the pitch and you know we would do several different we would have several different heads across the week you know one minute you you're dealing with a player registration or a um or a or a parent or a player issue half an hour later you're on the pitch delivering a session and then you're driving a bus and you know there's a lot more professionalism and uh, within the academies today and there's a lot of things that have absolutely changed and improved the system but you know there's a part was you know are we creating in some respects lazy coaches that just do that the bit that so-called is the coaching bit but there's so much more gains if you get experience in so many other areas uh, that enables you to connect better to players to have maybe a, a greater depth of understanding of the overall picture and I look back on my time there and my apprenticeship at, at Cardiff City was just an unbelievable apprenticeship you know I was pretty much doing everything uh, that I just mentioned and you know those were really really good times and I look back on those with real fond memories but obviously there's elements of professionalism that weren't right at that time that the academies and the new structure and the systems have improved so you know I think it's a bit of a bit of both yeah certainly I think it is about finding that right balance in fact I was having a conversation with another coach yesterday just about that exact thing that so maybe some of the newer coaches that are coming through now uh they don't really they don't they don't really have that same grounding where they have maybe if you'd even just look at grassroots coaches as an example even the simplest things of having to put nets up and all of that sort of stuff it's like they come up they show up and they just put on a session and they go home and it's just like they don't really get to get that other insight that actually like you said could be a massive part to play in terms of how well they connect with their players and how well they you know appreciate different things that go on within the environment even down to all right what are the parents experiencing how, how having those conversations so you know i think i think it's spot on so just you know you talk there about obviously the, you know the infrastructure changed massively in comparison to what it was back then and what, what it was and what it is now and how did that then change then moving into, you know, going from Cardiff to Southampton? Because obviously Southampton have got a rich history of, of producing young players. Um, how, how did that change for you in terms of, you know, how you maybe then had to approach things? Because obviously I would anticipate that in an environment that's had a lot of success in, in, in one particular way, um, if a new kind of leadership team comes in or a new person comes to take over, that it's very important that we don't veer too much in the direction of revolution but more kind of right evolution yeah yeah it's a it's a good question and you know I stepped into some really big shoes so you know Hugh Jennings and Malcolm Elias um who are who have now gone on to great things at Fulham were here for um for many many years and you know Southampton as you mentioned has always had a rich history of producing players through its academy and and turning those into uh you know into world you know Premier League and world-class players and you know, there were big, big shoes to, to step into. And as I mentioned, you know, Cardiff was, yeah, we were an academy program at the time I left. Um, but I would probably view us as a small academy, whereas Southampton were much more established, had more staff, we, we had been a Premier League club recently, but it just dropped down to the championship. Um, very much experienced staff. So, you know, George Prost was our French uh, under 18 youth coach. And you know, for, for me to work, I'd only ever worked with Welsh or English-based coaches. So, you know, to 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 have a French, really experienced French-based coach, you know, Stuart Henderson, really experienced at the club, was our uh, was our reserve team uh, reserve team coach at the time. 
you know, huge credibility in the game and huge experiences. And it was me probably, how old was I at the time? Maybe 20, you know, late 20s coming in, you know, still wet behind the ears, only really ran or, or, or facilitated the run of one programme. To come into that environment was a real challenge for me. And, um, you know, I was, I made many, many mistakes as you would do being, being young and inexperienced at that time, you know, uh, thinking you knew it all and thinking your ideas, you wanted to implement them straight away. Um, and it's really interesting. So I use my experience of coming back to Southampton now three years ago and, and sort of looked at myself when I first came into Southampton and, and this time around took much more time to observe, to get to know, to gain feedback, to understand the culture, to understand the environment um, before going off and sort of changing anything. Um, and I think I've done a much, much better job at that first, second time round than I did first time round where you know, if I'm if I'm honest and look back at myself, I made some poor decisions in that first year that, you know, rubbed staff up the wrong way. And I didn't maybe have the level of understanding before I made the changes that I thought were right for the club. And I still think they were coming from a position of wanting to, to make the programme better. But the way I went about it, the speed of change, and I spoke about the sort of early days at Cardiff being agile, you know, I went into a different environment and maybe didn't appreciate the environment as it was and try to enforce what yeah. I'd uh, my values and what I thought on the, on the environment. And I think one of the key words that kind of just springs to mind as you're talking there is patience. And you talked a little bit about, about it really there and recognise that the second time now you've gone back to Southampton, you've taken a little bit more time to step back and just assess, observe what's going on already, what's what's taking place. Yeah, you can start to build some observations around um, ideas that you might potentially look to change, but actually really you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but really you've taken time just to assess, right, is, does it really need change? Or is it doing enough of what it, what we need it to, to make sure that it's going in the end goal that we want it to? So I guess, you know, a lot of coaches are going to be listening to this thinking, I've got my own ideas, I want to go in and I want to implement this, I want to implement that, and, and, and fair enough. But reflecting back on that first time, would you say that some of those poor decisions that you've now, that you've now suggested that they are, were purely on the basis that you were too rash and too quick to make a decision rather than just taking a step back and saying, right, let me just assess and observe a little bit longer. Yeah, cool. Uh, of course. I mean, you know, experience is, a, in, you know, hindsight and experience are two really valuable things to look at. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, you can, you can have ideas. Um, those ideas can be good ideas and you might be excited and enthusiastic about them. But the biggest, most important thing in any type of change culture or change environment is how you go about engaging and bringing the people with you, your staff with you. And, you know, you've got to, your emotional intelligence has got to be, you've, you've got to be, you've got to understand that, you know, you might want it done yesterday or next week. But if the people that you're working with, staff, the players, aren't ready and haven't bought into that, you are much, much better off at slowly going backwards two or three or four, even four steps and taking people with you. Because in the long run, there's much, much more opportunity for that idea or that project or that piece of culture, whatever you're trying to do, to be more successful in the long term would be my, um, you know, my experience of getting it wrong would be, would, would sort of tell me that. So, you know, I think it's important. You know, you still should be brave with the change. Uh, you should take your time. You should glean all feedback. You can't please everybody all the time. And when you do make your decisions, you need to be decisive with those decisions. But going slowly 
and explaining the why are really, really important because it enables you to take people with you. I think you're spot on, and I, and I, I totally agree. So just want to unpack that a little bit further because I think there's a lot in there that maybe you know people might not have tapped onto. And the first piece is explaining the why. But I think before you can explain the why, you need to really have a good clear uh, clarity on what the why is, um, and not because it's someone else's why, but why is it the, the why for you? If that makes sense. And I think the other piece within that is also recognizing that in order for you to actually go those two or three steps back and maybe bring those people with you from that part of the journey. Um, you need absolute clarity on what the whole process looks like. And I think that's where I think, in my opinion, um, in my observations, a lot of coaches maybe potentially get it wrong, is that they see the end goal, they see where they're starting from, but they don't see the process in between. So it becomes very difficult, even if we're looking at whether it's a, from a player development perspective or a coach development perspective, to then you know get the participant, if you like, to identify where they are on that journey and what the next steps look like. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I, and I'd always use a sense check of, you know, when you when you when you when you're going through change, or you want to implement change. Sometimes I found myself in the early days trying to confirm that I was right with people similar to me. Um, you, my biggest challenge when you are going through this is to challenge yourself to firstly avoid those people who are like you who think it'll be good ideas because all they're doing is confirming your bias is can you get your idea across in the right way to land with your most opposite person in your club and if you can do that with them and do it first and do it early and engage them in the process don't avoid that don't ignore it if you if you can attack that bit first i think again you know, you're more likely to get uh, get your long-term success. 100%. Again, another thing, you really kind of thing, I've just looked into what you said there is, go with someone who's completely opposite to you because their, their view is going to be very different. They're going to have some possibly good challenges, perceptions and, and observations that might completely counter what you're trying to get, get to. But the other piece within that is also, we can get them to see our point of view, but they don't necessarily have to agree in, in full that this is the best way to do it. Yeah. It's them recognizing, okay, no, I understand it. It works and I get why it works, but I would still do the things this way. So then now you can kind of coming back to what we said earlier about finding the right balance. We can take some of the stuff that we're trying to implement, but actually there might be some stuff over here that can also complement that. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. just just on just you know, just to move things forward a bit, then you know, you talked there about um initially going to Southampton and then obviously coming back to Southampton, but in between that you had this piece with the FA. Now would it be fair to say that you was you was instrumental in the in the development of the England DNA when it did come out? I was part of it. So yeah. you know, when I look back on on my time there, you know, with real pride, I mean, I, I it was an incredible time. You know, um, sitting in you know the beginning this this infancy of of the England DNA is all instrumental of of Dan Dan Ashworth and you know his um, his desire to you know he, he took the job. I think about about eight, eight or nine months before I joined, and again, as all good leaders do, uh, took the time to assess the environment, took the time to to do his work on other associations, what was going on in the in the wider international program, uh, both from a coach education point of view and also from a national team's point of view, and probably spent seven or eight months sort of firming up his ideas and his his, his program, and and to be one of the first members of staff, you know, myself. Uh, I think Gareth uh, Gareth was uh, joined a little before me, 
Um, Mike Rigg joined as head of recruitment around that same time. Dave Redding and uh, came as as head of performance, and, and Daniel Avery, who was already at the FA. You know, it was just a brilliant time to be, you know, to have that blank piece of paper. You know, Dan's um, uh, Dan's such a positive forward-thinking leader and a trusting leader so you know to be involved in that infancy of that program to establish the ideas the dna around our national teams and build try and build an identity from the from the base from ground up and you know we had gareth's experience of being you know an england international for many many years you know you've got dave redden who's a world cup winner in rugby and you know dan's experience of of youth development and football riggy's from recruitment daniel avery's from coach education experience for many years so you know, just an amazing experience to be part of. And then to see some of the successes of, of that program. Um, and obviously, it's only, you know, the part that the FA paid is only a small part, EPPP and the growth of the game at youth development level, some of the phenomenal work that's going on at the clubs, at developing the players every day. You know, there's the, the sort of a synergy of all that stuff coming together that created, you know, the England team that you see today in terms of, you know, the, the young it's a very, very different team with the with a from historically where, you know, arguably it was a heavy shirt to wear. You know, players didn't want to make mistakes. I think now you've got flair players and you've got a real structure to build from. You've got players at every age group coming through, and I think there's a real the, the sense that England players weren't technically good enough. All that now is a myth and is gone. And you know, to to have been a to play that even if it is a small part in changing that perception of an England player was 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 a really good time. Just to build on that, then obviously you've mentioned um, a word a few times now throughout this conversation. Is that word culture? Now you've also mentioned that in that process, they you know, you've gone in. Dan Asher's faces right. You know we've got we've got a blank slate. What are we going to do? So you know one of the key things I really want to kind of look at there is well, where do you start? Because mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of clubs that are trying to do their own, you know, build out their own DNAs from scratch at times. And some people, we talked about earlier about not really always revolution, but sometimes evolution. Um, but there's also going to be a lot of coaches listening to this, especially those that maybe sometimes are going through their formal qualifications that are being challenged around some of these values, beliefs and principles that they want to kind of instill within not only their own philosophies of coaching, but also within the environments they're working. So where, where, where does one start with that? Yeah, I think, I think, being respectful is the best place to start so you know there was pioneers that had come before we'd even came into the FA you know your Dick Bates your John Peacocks you know there was a great resource around the future game you know there was a lot of stuff that was already there in place for us to tap into so you know how could we evolve um, some of the great work that was already in place Um, there was clearly a desire for um, the national teams to become a focus. Um, so, you know, the, the target was 2022, you know, for us to win the World Cup in 2022, uh, which obviously is, is is coming up now with the, with the changes from COVID. So, you know, at a senior level. So, you know, in 2013, for that to be set as the long-term target, I think it was the first time that England, irrespective of whether people thought that was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, it gave us a sort of a, a North Star to work from. And then, you know, we had, you know, we were able to look back and went, okay, well, if we're in now 2012, 2013, it was a time where England hadn't been successful in getting out of qualification of, of any major tournament for a long period of time. Um, so, you know, what were the things that we could affect to start to influence to move the dial in the direction of closing the gap between us and, for example, world champions of Spain or Germany at that time? So what were the things were in our control? So I guess we started to look at things like staffing structures. So when you looked at 
John Peacock at the time. So John Peacock ran England in the 17s, but he was also ran the pro license and then delivered on the A license. So his level of being able to be an expert and to have the time to devote solely to one specific role, being the best under 17 England coach, getting out to the clubs, watching as many games as he can, building those strong relationships, planning effectively for all the camps, those camps delivering outstanding um, performance for the players and then the review process and the, the MD team pulling all that together was something that we looked and went, there was a way of professionalising the programme. So easy win, quick win, you know, so let's do that. Let's have a proper structure across coaching, uh, all the diff performance disciplines, analysis, etc., cetera, uh, player education. Let's professionalise the structure because it was a very, at the time, it was an underinvested in programme where, you know, a lot of brilliant experts, but they only were given a tiny piece of time to be able to be to to really influence what was going on. So, you know, Dan put a proposal to the to the FA, which got signed off for us to have to look at a specialist coaching model, for example. You know, so in possession coach, an out of possession coach, a goalkeeper coach, you know, all full time roles, a head coach that supports that, the performance staff full time. So. In the build-up to tournaments, you could properly invest in a, a proper planning structure to make sure there was no stone left unturned. So I think the staffing model was was really important. But then there was obviously this piece around, okay, well, how do we want our teams to play? Um, so, you know, what's the style of play going to be? How do we make sure that style of play is consistent across all the age groups where we don't have a situation where the 16s play this way and then the under-18s, when you go there, they play a totally different way because you can't really recruit the types of players that you need to come through the system then. So, you know, again, you know, getting all the coaches aligned to the DNA, agreeing that, making sure that is set in stone uh, was, was a really, really important part of the project. And it also was the first time I felt the FA said to the clubs, when your players come to England, this is what the programme looks like for them. And whether it aligns with their programmes or doesn't align, at least they were aware of what was going on when the players came to, to be part of England. And then probably the, the third piece of the the jigsaw or, or a big piece from my perspective on the coaching front was the relationships between club and England and how we how we could go about ensuring that the club saw us as a support of being able to help further develop the players that were in their care and were, were their players. You know, if we had them for 60 days a year, for example, in a in a UA for qualifying Europe under 17s, that's 60 days that they haven't got them, but 60 days that we can maybe support the clubs in in the types of individual development work that they're doing, giving them experiences that maybe club football can't give them. Playing, you know, for example, taking the 16s to play in Brazil, you know, um, you know that's an unbelievable experience about against some of the best young players in the world. So, building strong relationships with clubs. First of all, sharing what we were doing, giving the clubs feedback on their players. Building those relationships by going into clubs more, watching the players play, building strong relationships with families, with the young players. And I think all of that piece built a much, much stronger identity and emotional connection with the players in the clubs and England and how all that could support each other rather than actors fighting against each other was, was I think, uh, one of the big parts of Dan's, um, Dan's ideas. Just, just to build on that then, you know, I, I think... Um... I think it'd be fair to say that in the past and maybe not not as much so now but in the past there has been a bit of a kind of a clash between clubs and the FA uh in, certainly in terms of you know when players are going away to you know represent England or at, at whichever level what were some of the things that you found to be some you know maybe consistent across the board and obviously you've talked there about saying to the clubs this is how we're going to do things over here um mm -hmm. just so you're in the in, you know you're, you're in the know if you like 
Um, did you ever did you ever get any sort of maybe requests around particular players around how to maybe support them and what kind of support they maybe club want you to give those individuals? Yeah, so um, you know we had some because we were able to you know for our coaches then to become full time, and obviously there's only 70, 60, 70 camp days a year, so the rest of the time you know they weren't sitting at home going well, when's my next camp what am I going to do you know they were able to get into clubs to watch games to build relationships with with club players with coaches and you know the majority of clubs were really supportive about us coming in and observing and working with so you know there's numerous examples across numerous clubs where you know certain players were either you know needed some additional support and just by the the triangle of the club the FA and the player all working together and the player could see that, that when they came away with England, you know, the first beginning conversations of that very first one-to-one that the coach would have to say, oh, I saw you play against Club X and I've been speaking to your coach, as you know, and I came into your club on this date and the things that the club are really... This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming... And his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Support want you to be supported on on this camp our X, Y, and Z. The players start to go, all oh, right, this is all joined up. This is supporting me. This is another opportunity for me to develop as a player. And actually, for us then to give the club feedback, so the club coaches are going, oh, I spoke to your England coach and, you know, he said this about you or he said that about you. He said you showed some development in this area, which is really good and supports what we've been talking about. So if we connect all those bits together, the player all of a sudden feels like as if everyone is there to support rather than maybe on the historical um, uh, issues. You might have had a club go in, I'm not sure you should go away with England. You really need to be with us for this game. And I felt there was a, a real turning point with many, many clubs around the value that uh, international football could offer and how there was, re- by building those relationships between coaches and sports science departments, et cetera. You know, there's some challenging conversations as well, but by opening that environment to work together, created much, much, much more synergy between the programmes to support the players who ultimately are at the centre of everything that we do. Definitely. And, you know, just to kind of build on that, then, you know, you, you obviously talked there about being one of the first people to kind of be brought in within the structures to kind of really, uh, if you like, help architect some of the some of the stuff that's going on today. What in your role as you know uh, head of development teams, you know, working with player pathways as well as coaching pathways, what does that actually look like, and what does that mean for anyone listening to this? Because you know they're going to be thinking, well, it's got a fancy title to it. But what do you actually do? Yeah, good shout. Um, so you know. So my responsibility, my remit was was um, twofold. First of all, on the national team. So from our youngest England team, which was uh, under 15s, uh, through to England and the 20s. And obviously then outside of that, there was 21s and the seniors. So I was 15s through to 20s. My job was to make sure that, A, we created a, a clear identity, you know, of we always use sort of the five, who we are. So our, our culture, how we want our England teams to, to our, our players to, act behave what we want the culture and the environment to look like how we want to play how we want to support the players how we want to coach them in terms of create an environment of player ownership um what our environments on the pitch off the pitch needs to look like so there's a lot of training and development in the early stages those first sort of two years really of uh, of i guess 
supporting the coaches to understand how we wanted the environment to look. And some of those coaches had to change their style. Simple as that. So Dan used to have a saying, change the people or change the people. So, you know, we, we would go in a certain direction and we wanted our coaching to look like a certain way. We wanted to create environments where the players took ownership and had a view and an opinion. And, you know, it wasn't just the coach tell, tell, tell all the time, even though there was times when there is an important that that, that, that happens. Um, you know, even though we wanted to create that, it was about making sure the coaches had time to adapt, to adjust, to support, to understand what we were looking for. But if if they didn't want to buy in, then it was a, it was you know it was time to change. And you know we 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 had a lot of um, opportunity to really bring in a lot of new fresh staff, staff with experience, staff from different you know. So you've got Dan Machichi, for example, in appointing in one age group, and Ad Boothroyd in the other. Then you've got one who's probably the most purest youth development coach, um, and you've got and you've got one that's come purely from a winning Premier League. You know, football league environment. So having those coaches come together in the same room and 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 get them on the same page of what we were looking for was, you know, was it was, it was a fantastic journey. Um, but it was one that Dan was unwavering on. You know, we we knew where we where he wanted the program to go, and it was important that it travelled in that direction. So a big part of my job was to go into those environments, those national camps, and to I guess my job was to quality assure the work. So you know, where work was good, signpost all the other age groups to get together and the coaches to get together and share that. But where there was opportunities for development, where I felt it was, um, it wasn't aligned to the direction that we were going. My job was to feed that back in the right way at the right time to the coaches, to the staff, to the program. And then again, signpost them to what good looks like at other age groups. So, you know, that quality assurance across the, the program of coaching, the environment, how we wanted things to look and feel from 15s to under 20s, was a really, really key part. So that was the, the sort of national teams part of it, and as well as building good club relationships or where there was a challenging club where we had a difference of opinion uh, to try and maybe go in and, 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 and I guess get us to a, to a place where we would work together. And then the second part of the, the job was, okay, so we have an opportunity through coach education to influence and show the coaches in the clubs that work with national team players every day, the direction of our travel. So, you know, we wanted to make sure that we used our national coaching program from level one all the way through to level five to see where we could positively influence and share the work that goes on with national teams. So we started to have coach education seminars, parts of courses where you could come in, watch one of our national teams where the coach would come in, share what we were doing, share the game plan. This is what we're doing today. This is why we're doing it. This is what the trainings look like. Come and watch the game. And then they would do a review afterwards of this is what we saw, able to take questions. So we started to bring the candidates from the courses or the, the guys that worked at the clubs every day with the players into the environment much, much more and connect um, the coach education and national teams together much, much, much more. And there's, there's so much in what you said there. And I, I want to kind of really come back to this one of the earlier pieces. Um, you know, you talked about those five core strands in terms of how we coach, how we support, how we play and all of that stuff. Is that a framework that was used before you went to the FA? Is that a framework that was developed while you were at the FA? Um, and why did you settle on that framework? Yeah, I mean, um, like I mentioned, you know, literally we started with a blank piece of paper. Um, so, you know, we had so many workshops, um, challenging, you know, 
days away, away days, you know, coaches coming together, other, you know, expertise, various programs that brought experienced coaches from clubs in to, to help us shape what we wanted to, to, get in, uh, to get in place. And I remember uh, it was one stage where I just had all of this information and all of this sort of stuff and looked at it and went, it's too complicated. And, you know, how are we going to make sure this is really clear, really simple for the players, for the staff, and what are the key principles and the values of what we're going after? And one of the sort of penny drop moments was to bring in a guy called Peter Glynn who worked for the FA um, in, in coach education. And what Peter is the only person I've ever known to have a coaching background, but also a um, like a press background. So he he is a he can you know pretty much write books, writes articles. He, he ran the the boot room for the FA. And we sat down for ages and ages, and he was able he was the pioneer of turning all of this complexity into something that I thought was quite simple and would land much, much better with our coaches and our staff, with club coaches and club staff, but more importantly, with the players. So, you know, Pete was instrumental in getting it from what it was to something really clear and, and that could be understood. Um, so, you know, we've got huge respect for the work that he did. In that. And I guess it shows that it was never one person's piece of work. It evolved, it shaped, it changed. There was there was different people in so many different moments that have helped shape and influence that both internal within the FA uh, and also external. So just to build on that then, you know, you, you talk about it, it's the work of so many people, it's a very collaborative approach in terms of putting that together. Um, from your experiences now and in hindsight, looking back on the process of putting that together, would you say there was any key bits that you think, do you know what, this was something that we did discuss, this is something that we looked at to become um, potentially part of this, but maybe we left out. I would really like to see that if if that was part of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think if I just sort of rephrase your question, I think there's two things that we could have done a lot better if I look back and reflect on my time. Um, one is, would be to invest more in the specialist coaching side. So, you know, clearly we had an ambition to move down the route of specialist coaching where we we went for in-possession coach, out-possession coach, obviously goalkeeper coach, which moved away from the sort of generalization of head coach and assistant coach to be able to get into the granular detail, um, to support the players individually better on camps, to enable us to prepare with greater depth for the game, the opposition, how we wanted to play and get those messages across delivered in in the both on and off the pitch in the way that we wanted to do. Um, but I felt we missed and I still think the game is missing a trick with regards to real specialism. So, you know, we're, we're looking at, at Southampton now, at, you know, throwing coaches at, you know, freak, you know, ball, dead ball specialist coaching. And, you know, we tried tried to implement the ideas from some real experts in other sports and, and, brought, and brought those guys into the FA. Um, but on occasions, the way the messages landed, um, there were certain coaches within the structure that just weren't having that at that moment in time and I, and I get it um because it was more change on top of already stuff that we've done and you know was it the right time um was it our place it was another question you know when you only got a players for a short period of time and you're interfering with their techniques etc you know a lot of clubs would have a lot of views on that but I do think when you look at other sports and the speed that they've adopted and embraced real specialism I still think it's a big missing part of of the game so there's a part of me that feels like as if I should have should have persevered more with that and I should have challenged back a lot more um because I felt it was it was right was the right time if we wanted to lead and close the gap between us and Germany and Spain it was another key piece of the jigsaw that I felt was would have uh, would have uh, elevated us 
but like I mentioned before, you've got to you've got to take the people with you, you've got to take your coaches with you. So maybe it just wasn't the right time. And then the second part that I look back and think we could have done even more on was we did a big piece around identity and building a stronger emotional connection with England and the badge and what it meant with the young players and also the senior players. You know, it was all throughout the age groups. Um, you know, really build that strong identity. So you know, we spoke quite a lot about. Um, you know, we did a great, you know, Owen Eastwood, who did the identity project for us, you know, was you know, is, is a pioneer in, in, you know, obviously he's written books on it now. But, you know, to, to have his expertise for a period of time in the FA, you know, I felt like as if we we could have utilised and gone with those ideas much, much more. So, for example, we built, you know, our identity was based on three things, original, fearless and composed. They were the three things we wanted all of our England teams and players to be. So original in terms of our style our way, you know, your individual style, bring it to the team. Uh, the fearless was around, you know, we walk towards a challenge, you know, we, we don't get overly stressed by the opposition. It's about what we do and, and we, we basically know that we can compete and win and, you know, we can really walk towards a challenge without any, any fear. So, and the third thing was around original fearless composed. So in those moments of truth, those key decisions that historically have gone against us, the penalty shootouts, the famous red cards, et cetera, that we would have the com the mental composure, both as a team and as individuals, to be successful in those moments. And I think, you know, Gareth, with the seniors, you know, the penalty shootouts that we've won recently have, have you know, have helped, I think, cement that sort of um, you know, composed nature. You know, we have changed. There's, there's the England players, I think, now feel like, there's a, there's a, the shirt's lighter that you know they feel more confident walking into those environments and i think we could have reinforced the culture much much more you know we could have told better stories you know we, we used great examples so we took the england number 16s uh, to to mexico you know uh, sorry to brazil with dan machichi and you know dan was passionate about camps and players and you know we got john barnes into wembley before the kids left to talk about the maracana and you know the winning and the, the kids were just like you know bowled away and we think that there's a generational difference yes but having John Barnes in and all the kids now they google they know who it is and for him to tell his story about you know the success of the American Isle the last time we won in Brazil and for then those kids to be going to Brazil the following day to go into that environment I just felt like we never really did enough of that type of emotional connection and identity we could have done much much more with that and, you know, I felt, you know, the coaches bought into that, but we could have done a stronger piece around the staff, the coaches and also the players in building a much, much stronger identity. Even though we did it well, it, I think it's a massive lever that we could have pulled on. Mm, and I think, I think the, the key thing I'm really hearing there is like, it, it's about inspiring, yeah. that inspirational piece. And, and, and there's, a, there's a lot again in what you just said there. I want to kind of unpick some of it. So if I go back to the, you know, the phrase that you've used a couple of times that you want to take the coaches with you. You also mentioned earlier that obviously about making those changes that um, there's going to be some people that, well, they just don't buy into it. So Dan Ashworth's phrase of change the people or change the people, how long do you give that? And what do you, um, what do you recognise as buy-in? Right, because there's a lot of coaches that are probably listening to this right now, have been in situations, maybe even in situations now where they're in an environment and they're being challenged or tasked with working in a way, but maybe they, they, they're not fully aligned with. Um, and sometimes that could be they just don't understand the vision. So it's now, again, it's the leader coming back those few steps to help them show where the, where the vision is going. 
or it's sometimes I get the vision, but it's just not what I want. Um, or sometimes actually I'm really on board with the vision, but I just don't know how to be part of that because I haven't had the experiences yet. So, you know, where, where, where do we go with that? And obviously, that, you know, there's such a subjective piece around it. Yeah, I mean, you, you could use it with your players, you know, you'll, you want your centre-back, for example, or your goalkeeper to play, a, you know, to, to, to play more out from the back, you know. You can't just sit down with your goalkeeper and say, right, as a team, we're changing how we play and we're really going to build from the back and you're going to be a key piece, a key part of that. And, you know, and expect the following game for that to be perfect. You know, the same that you can't expect, you know, your coaches uh, who, you know, you, you might fundamentally be asking them to change their principles um, and buy into your, you know, this sort of, this player ownership piece, um, you know, you can't expect that change to happen overnight. But what I do think as a leader, the biggest part of you as a leader is to invest the time in explaining the why, explaining, you know, going over it and over it and over it again. But you've still got to have the level of emotional intelligence to sort of look at the situation and go, you know, I don't think there's ever a set number of time. You can't say, oh, I'm going to give it six months. You know, if you can see that there's investment, if you can see there's there's people trying, that there's growth, that there's change, and that change might be small to start with, but if you can see that, and if you believe, and your emotional intelligence will tell you how much, you know, that, you know you, you'll be able to get a sense of how much that individual, that coach is trying, or that player is trying, you persevere, and you keep going, and you keep going. If you get the opposite, which is, you know, somebody that's absolutely anti- you know, I think it's always the three strikes and out. You try, you try again, and the third time, if, if it's still the same, you just your emotional intelligence tells you that. You know, there's a there's a famous saying. You know, how long can you water dead flowers? You know, if, if there's only so much you can, there's only so much water you can keep going back and trying again. If if you know there's that that individual is not prepared to change, so you know, I think it gets gets to a stage where you, you then have to have a difficult conversation. And I'm so glad you said that. And I think it's a great way to put it around how long you water dead flowers. So I guess, you know, one of the key strands that's really come up for everything that we've talked about is constantly about um, setting the environment, developing that environment, building a culture, setting the culture, um, and sometimes from scratch and sometimes building what's already in place. So, you know, what would your advice be to coaches that are kind of at that stage now where either the culture that they're currently in has been has been stuck in the way it is for so long that, you know, it, it might need a bit of a refresh. It might need a bit of an update because maybe it's outdated for the people that were from who were in the environment to who are now in the environment. Um, or if someone's been tossed similar to what you were, you know, with a blank piece of paper and saying, right, okay, we need to set a culture here. Where do I start? And obviously, you know, a lot of people's values, beliefs and principles are going to kind of really tie into this very closely. But what will be you know what will be your framework to start from yeah good shout um we, we again we, we've got a little our, our psychology team has got a model which is um assess accept adapt apply um and even though we use it as a psychology model i, I think about it quite a lot in terms of i think either decision making or change so the first thing that you've got to do so you know assess um so when I say assess, as in assess the environment, assess what you see, assess where you think the low hanging fruit or the opportunities are uh, to improve things. And, you know, don't always do it through your eyes, you know, seek feedback from others, you know, so you know, actually engage your players, engage your coaches and, you know, and, and listen. 
I think you know listening is a massive massive you know you'll you know you'll have a bias you'll have an unconscious bias when you go into those conversations because you're waiting for the bits that you want to hear that align to what you you think the program's going but are you really you know challenge yourself to really listen challenge yourself to really listen with an open mind and really get an, a, an assessment of where the environment is I think the next bit is about accepting so accepting like I mentioned the things that are fundamental the blocks that are in place that form part of uh, what the club or the infrastructure is all about um, but also identifying where those low-hanging fruit that I mentioned and where the real opportunity for change or improvement or success is um, then you've got to adapt so what I mean by adapt is to get your message across don't always think it will land the way that you want it to first time and don't always think that you'll land the message in the way that you want it to land you know some people will get it first time from being in a group setting other people you have to invest in one-to-ones you know in a, in a formal process other people will want to walk around the pitch or a, a chat on the halfway line you know you've, you've got to be prepared to be agile and change your style to meet the needs of the individual or the, the people that you're in front of um and then you know the final bit is about you know once you've followed all that process apply as in you know be really clear on what you're going after and remind people reinforce the messages every day and the one thing i would finally say is make sure you catch people doing it well so when you do catch people doing it well reinforce the positivity the changes that you want to see whether that be from the players from the coaches from the environment whatever it might be you know don't always look for moments to catch people out you know the best way is to you know i thought i was thought dan machichi at the fa was was a genius at it with 15 year olds you know catch them doing it well and reinforce that behavior because you will get it again and again and again then so that would be my model no and i think i think it's, i think it's a great way to look at it and just on that final piece there about catching them doing it well um no, I do a lot, as, as I mentioned before, and I do a lot of stuff around coach education, coach mentoring, coach development. And then one of the key things I always say, right, you know, when we when we are looking at players as an example and we're offering them praise, are you really giving them praise or are you giving them, uh, so are you, are you only giving them praise or are you giving them understanding too? So it's recognising that, yeah, well done is great and it will have an impact, but actually well done. I love the way you did this probably has 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 more of an impact so can we not just praise them but give them give them recognition as to why they're being praised yeah and i think that that piece is just what it, you know if, if you really want to have that impact and be able to get them to self assess self-diagnose self and then reinforce it for themselves they need to really understand the why is what you know essentially what we talked about earlier and it's just reinforcing that message as, as human beings it's human nature you know we all we all like a pat on the back. We all like to be told, well done, you know. We all like to be reinforced and, and you know, that positive behaviour to be reinforced. But again, you know, it's just making sure, I think you hit, hit the nail on the head, be specific with what, you, what you're saying. So, you know, well done, I really liked how you blah, 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 you know, did that, you know. Oh, I love the way you picked up that bag, the kit man, and helped the kit man out because it reinforces the culture that we're trying to breed here where we're, you know, all in, the all in mentality that we've got. And I think whether you're a 35, 35-year-old professional player with 15, 20 years experience or you're a 15-year-old child at the beginning of your journey, you know, they both want the same things. They both want to be told when they're doing well, to make sure that those behaviours are reinforced and also to to continue to develop and become the best they can be. So, 
And I also think there's an opportunity to also do that in the team environment. And I know sometimes, you know, you have to be careful and, and get the emotional intelligence around the group, but especially around cultural things. So, um, you know, again, some of the England coaches that I, that I look back on, you know, Steve Cooper in particular was fantastic at reinforcing cultural messages through the team, but picking out individuals, but also he would have teed those individuals up to know it's come in within and, and he would just be able to reinforce that within the whole environment. And I, I always felt that was really, really, you know, a great strength of his in identifying, reinforcing the individual and then finding the right moment in time to then show how that moment is impacted on the whole group and share it. So some really good storytelling from him. Just, just a quick one on that. You, know, you said that obviously you know, if he'd identified individuals, he'd, know it, he'd, he'd let them know it was coming. What, what do you mean by that? Well, so for example, if... Um, you know, if I give the Kitman example, so, you know, there was one player that, you know, stayed behind and, you know, you know cleared, the, cleared the change rooms or there was a bottle left on the side of the pitch and they were that one player that went to collect it and pick it up and put it in the bin. So, you know, he would reinforce that with the player by saying, you know, look, you know, that what you just did there or I just saw you pick up the bottle off the floor. Um, you know, I know it was left by someone else, but, you know, we're all in this together. That reinforces the culture. You know, it'd be great. If you can continue to do that, we really appreciate you doing that for the team. And by the way, what I want to do tonight is I want to just sort of, I'm going to give a couple of cultural examples of things that have done well. And I might just ask you one or two questions just around why you picked that bottle up or what, you know, why you felt that was important. So if you can just have a little think about that and reinforce it in the meeting, that'd be great. And then all of a sudden, the player's not caught on the hop. They get a little bit of time to think about it. You're encouraging them to take ownership and also to be brave enough to stand up and share their thoughts or feelings in front of the team because vulnerability is massive and we keep football's an environment where um you know almost sort of if you if you do put your hand up you seem to be this word busy you know but actually it's really important that we start to breed this culture of ownership and information and ideas and thoughts and culture coming from the players and if you can start to grow that in an environment you're more likely to get when you're struggling at half time as a coach and you're scratching your head going Flipping out, I'm not really sure when I'm, when I'm first half in midfield there, you're more likely for the players to go, well, actually, coach, I saw this, you know, and breathe that. So you know, I always felt, you know, we had some coaches in particular, two or three of the, the coaches I just mentioned were fantastic at um, that cultural piece and supporting the players and, and encouraging and nurturing them. Amazing. Matt, honestly, you know, there's been so many insights around everything that we've talked about today. And I think, um, you know, we could probably sit here and talk about for hours about culture and developing that across teams and individuals so I just want to say a massive thank you personally um would you you know would you have any maybe key 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 summarizing messages or key takeaway messages that you want coaches to think about when they're listening to this um yeah uh you know we, we've talked quite a bit about culture today um culture is important so you know a lot of coaches get obsessed with training sessions and style of play and you know, did my session work? Um, you know, I think the most important thing that we have should have at the beginning of the start of everything that we do or everything we try and create is, you know, is the culture right? Is it um, is it what I want it to be? Is it what you know the players should be for the players? Uh, and that should become that should be first and foremost in terms of you know values, behaviours, the environment that you want to create for the players. Um, you know, and I hear and I see loads of you know, cultural messages and words stuck on walls, but do you actually see it lived and breathed in your training sessions, you know, in your in your moments when things are difficult in games, et cetera. 
So I would say put culture first. Um, uh, I would I would also say don't expect you know change to happen overnight. You know change takes time, and you have to be agile and you have to you know it's not going to work first time. You have to have another go and show resilience and perseverance and listen and be open minded. Um, and probably um, my final piece is uh, I'm massive on player ownership. So I would say uh, empower your players, empower your players and show levels of vulnerability that you haven't as a coach got all the answers and you know, nor should you. Uh, and the answers in many, can come from many sources, but a big source of those answers could come from the players if you create that right environment and culture for them to to, nur- to be nourished and grow in that in that environment. So, you know, ownership I think is really really important as well. Amazing, I think that's a great way to kind of uh, to turn it off. Really, no Matt, I really appreciate your time today, and um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening to this right now that are really good. They're probably going to replay it to be honest a few times because I think there's some real nuggets in this one. So, no, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. You are more than welcome. It was good to speak to you. Likewise. Okay, take it easy. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.